0: There's a town consensus about what kind of girl I am. Want to take a guess at what it is? No. They call me a danger whore. They're wrong. Really? See, I'm thinking maybe they're right. I have these feelings for you that I don't want to have, but... I can't stop myself feeling them. And if this were the first time, I'd probably just ignore it, but... See, there's a pattern that's starting
1: to emerge now, so maybe it's time I just started accepting this about myself. I might be a whore,
2: but I ain't stupid.
3: again here with Wayne Wise. Hey, Wayne.
0: Hey, Mav. I'm once again here. Barely.
3: <laughs> and, just, just walked in the door. And Palindrome Hannah Lee Rogers. Hey, Hannah.
1: Hey, hey I Hannah. think you ruined that joke by adding in the Lee Rogers.
3: Okay, well, I mean, we Palindrome Hannah <laughs> Lee Rogers through Rog... L- yeah. Hannah.
0: <laughs> Hi, Hannah. Hi, guys.
3: And we are joined once again by two of our most popular guests from our Monster Mash episode. We have Mike Chimmers and Heather Duda. Hey, guys.
2: Hi, how are you? How's it going? Good Welcome back. back. Yeah, welcome back. So, <laughs> it's good to be back.
3: <laughs> so last time you guys were on the show, this before Hannah was here. We had a long, exciting conversation about monsters in popular culture, of which Wayne and I knew very little. So we asked Hannah to be here for this sequel show. To talk about it, and oh yeah, actually, before we get into all that, I should point out. So, two things special about today: we are recording on actual Halloween Day. This is our last of our Halloween themed series of shows. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> that's the spooky fun part. Also, for people who listen to the show, you might realize that Wayne and I are both in Pittsburgh. So, this week as we record is the week that we had a large tragedy. We had a massacre at a synagogue, which was depressing and sad. And we know people
0: who live there. Um, Neither of us do. I I know somebody who was in the building, uh, narrowly escaped. Yeah. um, so. So
3: we are still doing the show. We are not going to talk that much about that thing, other than the fact that it is sad and, you know, hearts go out to everybody involved. But we're going to try to have fun talking about spooky monsters instead. So, so, <laughs> so just so know that
0: spooky, we are aware spooky, of that. Spooky spooky fictional monsters as opposed to real life monsters.
4: As opposed to the real life ones. Yeah. So, you no, know, unfortunately. I probably
0: I think Heather will agree with me you can't really talk about one without yeah. talking about and, the other and you are absolutely like, right. and, and yeah. just just to point out uh Michael lived in in Squirrel Hill when when his family lived here in Pittsburgh so uh, And in fact I'm also Jewish yes. so yeah uh,
4: yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I I know that synagogue very well, and I used to walk past it almost every day. And I believe I attended services there once. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is it's very personal for all of us. Right. Mm -hmm. So
3: there's some context for the show this week. So if things get depressing from our normal, silly pop culture show, that's why. But I thought I'd let everybody know that who is listening. And so we're going to try to move on and talk about monsters uh, fictional monsters, as
0: Wayne said. <laughs> so, so where do we leave off last time? Pick up right there, guys.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, right in the middle of the
3: sentence. <laughs> I
0: can't, even, can't remember.
3: <laughs> Actually. I actually have a question because again, this is going to be a lot of unlike most shows where Wayne and I monopolize all the time and talk way too much, probably not as much of that here. So the thing that I found fascinating where we left off, we had been talking about sort of naturally how monsters started to get sexy with Anne Rice. And then (laughs) we started talking very, very briefly about Twilight, which I have not read. I tried to. And then I said, this is not for me. I have seen all the films because that was easier. And I find it—I'm going to (laughs) say—fascinating. I'm going to—is that—is that a fair word? I find it interesting and fascinating.
4: And like a like a a train wreck is interesting and fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, team Jacob all the way. No, (laughs) no.
1: Oh my god, no. I don't like Twilight, but no. I have strong opinions about this. (laughs) <laughs> right.
3: uh, Sorry, I'm just being contrary. Actually, but I, don't, I have I have I have very real issues with Jacob, which might come up later in the show. But, but I did find that to be an interesting place to start the conversation because, and I'm wondering if Hannah had this experience too. But Michael and Heather both pointed out that as serious scholars, they both knew this was trash long before they ever touched it. And then you had, and then you had students, you both said you had students who were like, well, you should really give it a chance. And then that's why you both read it. So, Hannah, is that your experience with it as well? Or did you read it of your own free will and volition? Okay.
1: So, I am very mad that I read Twilight and here's
2: one. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Me too. We're we'll of one mind on that for sure.
1: So, Uh, I I am fairly young, Um, so I was actually a teenager when Twilight came out, which now actually means I'm fairly old, Uh, and (laughs) I, I did not read them because I wasn't interested in them because they sounded dumb, and then all my friends started reading them. And they were like, this is so good, Hannah. You got to try it. You read everything. This is like, why are you being so snobby? And I said, okay, well, whatever. I'm still not reading it. And one of my friends was like, I love them so much. I guarantee you will love them. You pick out three books you want me to read, and I and you read the first three Twilight novels.
3: So oh, I- that's a horrible deal for anybody else.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I did. Yeah, I know.
3: I'm,
2: I'm sure you did. I
1: read them, and I picked out three novels: the Barmaeus trilogy. Actually, it was it's like a young adult fiction about demons. Um, and she never read them, so she broke. them.
0: <laughs> still you. sucker. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was writing book reviews. I got paid to read Twilight. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, it.
1: well, I was actually listening when I listened to the original show and you talked about how your students were like, give it a chance. That's the exact opposite experience I've had as an instructor because I think that Twilight is basically Jane Eyre. Like Edward
2: Edward Cullen
1: is bit is literally named after Edward Rochester. So whenever yeah. I u- tried to use Twilight as a contemporary example of how the Victorian period still exists to this day, all my students looked at me like I was crazy, and they're like, "Are you obsessed with Twilight? Like no one reads Twilight. It's not good." And I was like, "I know it's not good." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was just
4: trying to connect Uh,
2: with
4: you. (laughs) I think that's wonderful because uh, my dear friend, who's a professor of literature at Carnegie Mellon University, and her name is Dr. Christina Straub. She. Oh, Christina's
3: awesome. I love Christina.
4: Oh, you you know her, huh? Absolutely. Um, Well, she was one of the first people ever to write seriously about pop culture. And she compared um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Jane Eyre. And and this this was before anybody was writing seriously about about pop culture stuff you know in the late 90s and and um i would have been in their classes at that time yes yeah well so um so it really early 90s actually yeah but i think that i think it's a very it's it's a it's it's an interesting thing and then we have now like pride and prejudice and zombies and stuff like that you know um so this notion of like the way that we are adapting uh um jane austen into our modern monster vocabulary with these works might be worth pursuing
2: Well, you know, I I just because I'm back on the Jane Eyre um, thought, I I rarely admit to having a favorite anything because there's so many wonderful works out there. How can you pick one? But I have always loved Jane Eyre, despite its problems. I mean, as a, a female reader of the late 20th, early 21st century I recognize the problems and uh, I, I, when I read Twilight, because I both read it and I got through most of all the movies um, sadly there came a point and I just said my life is not long enough to waste any more time on this text. I'm, I'm done <laughs> moving on with my life. But as I was, I, I picked up on some of those connections and I think it gives me pause because I really have this fondness for Jane Eyre. Uh, there are things of it in it that still to this day irritate me, but there are a lot of things that I, I really like. And, um, one of the things I really like is this idea of, of, um, after Rochester loses everything and Jane comes in and she's almost the more dominant in the relationship and, And they kind of come together as somewhat equals at that point, as much as you could be contextualized culturally. But um, I feel like that to me, I think might be missing in the twilight, right? Like, like, is this what's missing? Is this the component that as we see Jane Eyre go through the time, you know, a hundred and so years, is that what's missing? Because I don't get that at all in twilight, but maybe a little in Buffy.
1: Yeah. uh, The thing that like, I kind of find really uncomfortable about Jane Eyre uh, is that she literally has to like have him lose a hand and get blind for their relief. Spoilers? <laughs> oh.
4: <laughs> I feel like if something's more than 100 years old,
2: it's, you can't call it a spoiler. <laughs>
1: my boyfriend had never read Jane Eyre never saw the movie, didn't know the plot I gave him a summary of the plot this past week he lost his mind, he was like this is really messed up and I was like, yeah, it is.
0: yeah yes it is
2: <laughs> yeah
1: uh, Hannah, Hannah, I have to
4: ask you. I have to ask you in in reference to our ongoing uh, discussion about Victorians and uh, vampires. Have you read Glenarvan by Carolyn Lamb? No,
1: but I will now.
4: Yeah, it, you you. It's it's a lot like Twilight in in many ways. <laughs> I think you probably won't <laughs> enjoy it, uh, but um, it's an amazing. It really is an astonishing novel. It's a it's sort of a kiss and tell. Uh, that, sh- that, uh, Lady Carolyn Lamb wrote about her tempestuous romance with Lord Byron and Lord Byron appears as the character Glen Arvin and he is the mm-hmm. model for the vampire stories that, that come after. Uh, and eventually you will see pieces of Glen Arvin show up in Dracula as well. Mm-hmm.
2: So, but, okay. um, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, so, so I guess my question becomes, what is it about this narrative that molds so well to the vampire text? What, what is it about the, the gender issues that we see this time and time again, just recycled in new ways to fit the context of the culture?
3: The gender issues of being a vampire. He yeah,
2: means. just the, the feminine masculine representations, right? The feminine has to be subservient almost in a lot of these texts, right? So they have to be less than unless there's something physically wrong with, with the male. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm just thinking of, I'm reading, um, Deborah Harkness All Souls trilogy, um, where it, I'm on the third book and it's demons, witches and vampires. And there's this, this crack that, that the witch Diane makes to Matthew, the vampire. And she says, you know, humans, warm bloods as she calls them, have this idea of the brooding vampire. And, and they, they like to be, you know, uh, women have this fantasy that they like to be, um, for lack of a better word, vampire handled, right? Um, and there's this danger to it. And, and you know, Matthew laughs and they have a good laugh at it. And then about chapter later, of course, they're having sex and it, it fits that mold. And, and I have to think that Deborah Harkness might be doing it out of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of a thing. But it does seem to to be sort of the continual what we see in in a vampire text, dominance versus subservience.
1: Well, I mean, the family in general is like the if you want to go for a specific definition, someone like Wendy Brown, when she talks about liberal family values, says that, you know, there's a fantasy of the male being a liberal individual and in that he's unattached to anyone. He has his freedom. And he can only do that because the woman is already attached to him and children, and the woman is never an individual, and the definition of gender is predicated on competition and inequality between the sexes. And, you know, like, I mean, no, I I shouldn't tell this story. No, I'm going to tell the story. Um,
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I always say right before I tell a story. I'm not going to tell this story.
1: So this is not as wild as you think it's going to be. Uh, But I was at a Wayne this summer. And the reason I shouldn't tell the story is I was only at one Wayne this summer. And if the person that (laughs) listens to this, she's going to be mad, but whatever. (laughs) We're close.
3: Well, we wouldn't have known that. You just to say, oh, it was the other wedding you were at.
1: She, she knows. Uh, so, <laughs> dear, So, like, in a lot of, like, Christian ceremonies, they include the lines about how the wife is supposed to be submissive to the husband. But, they, mm-hmm. they like, now they're trying to recuperate that and make it okay by saying, but the husband has to love the wife so he won't do anything bad to you. To which I say if there is an institution predicated on the fact that it'll only work out if one person, the person who is quote unquote in charge, isn't going to do anything bad to you. There's something fundamentally wrong with the institution. And I think that what's appealing about a lot of like monster stories in general is that it gets at the fact that things in our world are just really messed up. And They. I mean, what's interesting to me is that sometimes it seems like Dracula, even in its most fantastic, is more truthful and like more understanding about the world than like something like Pride and Prejudice, which is more of a realist novel. Oh,
4: I totally agree with that.
3: Totally. <laughs> one of the things that, that for me, and we, we sort of cut off the last episode before we started talking about one of my favorite sexy vampire stories, which is True Blood. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of True Blood. I have a couple of these Sookie Stackhouse novels they're based on, and I've not yet read them, just because... Hannah was talking about, you know, you read everything. Well, it turns out there's a lot of books in the world and it's really hard to get to they're all of them. Yeah, so I will get to them, but I was very addicted to the show. Mm-hmm. And there is the sixth episode of the sixth season is called Don't You Feel Me. And it has my favorite Sookie quote in it. It's when there's a vampire, again, spoilers for a show that's been over for a few years, but there's a vampire named Warlow who Sookie has been. Being chased by as he is trying to make her his vampire bride undead, you know, evil, 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 blah, blah, blah. blah, And he and he spends half the season, you know, the first five episodes of the season trying to have sex with her and murder her, not necessarily in that order. (laughs) And she eventually catches him. She catches him. She takes him to a mystical realm and chains him up to a tombstone where he is powerless. And then she starts talking to him and she says, there's a town consensus about what kind of girl I am. You want to take a guess at what it is. They call me a danger whore. I'm thinking maybe they're right. I have these feelings for you that I don't want to have, but I can't stop myself from feeling them. And if this were the first time, I'd probably just ignore it. But see, there's a pattern that's starting to emerge now. So maybe it's time I just started accepting this about myself. I might be a whore, but I ain't stupid. (laughs) She says that to Warlow, who's chained to a tombstone, and then she strips down and fucks his brains out. That's what she does. Later, she kills him. Because she's the good guy and she's the hero. But the yeah, point of the I scene... invited
0: to parties yeah. like that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I was literally, if you listened to last week's show, <laughs> and we talked about the Eveline party. But, but anyway, the point of the scene is supposed to be about Sookie, who starts the show as very much the sweet, innocent virgin character, final girl, to call back a couple of episodes of ours. And then she becomes darker and darker as the series goes on. And this is the moment where she sort of accepts about herself all of her sexual agency as male gazy and problematic. As it is in some ways, it's also her saying, look. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do what I want. And she does. And from that moment on, for the rest of the series, she's very much a, I will do what I want kind of person. So I'm wondering if part of the appeal of the vampire, we talked about this a little bit on the last show where you were talking about how in order to become a vampire hunter, you've got to accept some of that darkness in yourself to be a monster hunter. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if part of the appeal is this is a narrative where you can, especially if you start with the Victorian times even moving to something like Twilight, Twilight is very much based in the good Mormon girl in the, you know, living the proper life, wait for marriage till sex, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if part of the appeal is if we make this more monstrous, if we say it's not just sex, it really is something of evil. We can sort of embrace our inner demons so to speak and sort of move towards things that are at least society says are improper particularly for female characters but also i'd say even for the male ones is there something about the vampire narrative that because it is monstrous and we can't just say this is a story about a young girl wanting to be horny and wanting to have her explore sexuality we can say you know, it's a vampire and it's a werewolf. So something magical is going on. So I'm allowed to explore it because magic.
4: Right. Okay. Yes. I can respond to this because I think it was Hannah who was saying just a few minutes ago that, um, that Bram Stoker was able to write a more ingenuous novel than Jane Austen because he was writing about vampires. Um, he was able to talk more frankly about Social problems that he thought were were problems, like the incipient rise of homosexuality and other terrifying things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but also about you know other political things like the uh, invasion of foreign cultures and um, uh, economic problems that were coming from from overseas. Um, I think that this is directly correlative to something that I observed in the early 19th century theater. Um, It was of course impermissible to show sex acts on stage. Uh, sure. It was indecent. And it was something that the theater was particularly interested in divorcing itself from because the theater had a had a long history in England of being a, a licentious place and, and a, a front for a brothel, really. You know, so it's got a bad reputation. So it wants to be respectable. But can you give me an address? I'm sorry. No, yes. <laughs> um, they all burned down. I'm sorry. But so they couldn't show explicit sex acts on stage. However, they could show highly sexualized acts of supernatural violence on stage yeah you talked like, about that last yeah night. we talked about this a little bit, like for instance, the penetration of the neck of the victim in in a um right. in a monster play right, and that could be done in a highly sexually charged way, but that that would definitely give its um it's a, a, a patron's a sexual thrill without necessarily violating those codes of conduct, right? Because you, you, mm-hmm. you know, if any the censors came around, you could say we well, never what? did anything sexual. This is a, this is violence, not sex, and <laughs> so, so violence then becomes a stand-in for sex. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think then that um, that that perhaps we might conclude then based on what I'm listening to Heather and and, and Hannah say that the reason why. Uh, Jane Austen's work and maybe the Bronte sisters work also lends itself so well to transformation into monster culture nowadays is because it's an
0: opportunity for us to be more frank about the sexuality. <laughs> I, I, am going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. You're talking about, you know, what they could and couldn't show on stage. Mav, you and I have talked about this, the, in, in the world of comics and the comics code from the 1950s, mm-hmm. this huge list of things you weren't allowed to show and, you know, sex certainly being one. Or, of them.
3: Write the, or even write the word. You can't say yeah, the, word. You like the word. You cannot say the word vampire yeah. you,
0: or voodoo. Yeah, they yeah, rename them all. Yeah. yeah, they they renamed that stuff. So, so sexuality, you know, monsters, horror, terror—all these things were were taken out. You just simply weren't allowed to do it under the the Comics Code Authority. But you and I can both go back to comics from the late 1950s all through the era of the Code. And point that stuff out that has been encoded in it mm-hmm. in in different ways. I mean, they, we still saw all that stuff. It was just encoded very differently than than the explicit. Yeah. So I, I'm just bringing that up as a point of comparison. Yeah. So. Same thing
3: happens with the Hollywood production code, M- motion picture production code. Yeah. Outlaws sex pretty much entirely. So you end up with a 20 or 30 year period of men and women kissing. The scene being cut, and then she's brushing her, her hair.
1: Um. Uh, or like when you look at like television whenever it first began. Like, I Love Lucy, they literally had to get permission to, like, do the pregnancy storyline, and they couldn't say the word pregnant, so it was expecting, and of course, you know, the (laughs) jokes about all the twin beds
2: in the really early classic sitcom.
0: Yeah. Ozzy and Harriet having...
2: Right. I I want to go back to something (laughs) Mike said because I think, I don't know, um, we talked a little bit about this in the last show, but one of the things that always made me cranky as I started down the academic path of (laughs) horror uh, was people (laughs) would say, how do you rationalize studying low art? And I would think... Don't don't you realize this is right. the barometer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of cultural fears and change? I mean, it, it, it is. It's yeah, exactly mm-hmm. the yes. space in which people are trying to figure out where the world is going. I do a lot with um, slasher films and and sort of 1970s forward in my work. But my husband and I over dinner tonight were talking about um, uh, Dracula's Daughter, which you know, I mean, yeah. early films um, in the genre were were sort of pushed aside by censors they thought well that's ridiculous no one's going to pay attention to it and you have this very sexualized female character with very clear um you know a a lesbian storyline for for lack of um or i shouldn't say for lack of i mean that that is a major part of this text dracula's daughter and you know it's early 1930s and if 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 that isn't demonstrating Mm -hmm. that that this genre is the place where where people are just trying to kind of figure out changes in culture and nobody picks up on it or at least the censor stone. I think people pick up on it now, of course, but nobody pays attention yeah, to it right. at the time. Yeah. And and it just goes into theaters. And, and I, I cannot tell you what the sort of run was or how many people saw it, um, but it is it's about. The culture of changes and and the space in which women's sexuality and gender issues can start to be, well, not even start, can be explored, uh, continue to be explored.
4: Yeah, the, the monstrosity of these characters gives them a sort of cover in a way because mm-hmm. they're already considered monstrous and right. they're all going to die at the end of the, of the story. <laughs> well, right? sure. So, you know, and we were uh, uh, the play that I'm working on right now is The Children's mm-hmm. Hour by Lillian Hellman. And one of the things that we are wrestling with is that this is a play about about um, lesbians uh, from the 1930s. And like all plays about uh, homosexual people in the 1930s, it ends with the death of the mm-hmm. homosexual person. And um, which is one of the tropes that, that pe- everyone's trying to move away from. Yeah, yeah now sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Right. Yeah. And so this is, even though that's an incredibly sympathetic story, you know, to the, to the, to those people, um, and, and the, the death of the, of the character is you know, what drives it home. Nevertheless, you know, the fact that the, that the villain is punished. And this is something that actually Alice Cooper talked about in his own, in his own uh, discussion of his stage shows, because he would play Mm -hmm. these psychotic villains or these
0: supernatural villains. Noted scholar Alice Cooper. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I can, I can talk in depth about Alice Cooper. Yeah.
4: But I mean, he, he actually wrote, uh, I read an interview that he wrote where he said at the end, my character is always punished. He's, Mm -hmm. he's caught and he's, he's hung. He dies on stage and, and and he comes back dressed all in white reborn for for the encore. Exactly. So, so the, the, um, the moral framework of the, of the, um, of the monster story provides (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. a
4: free space in which those things can be explored and, and experienced titillatingly with the understanding that, the, you know that's a carnivalesque moment which is going to be over and anybody who has dabbled in that right. is going to die right mm-hmm. but
0: well fun. there there's the i mean the traditional morality play has that you, know, you, you go through you do all of these these horrible deeds but then you are punished and you know, once again bring it back to comics the crime stories the horror stories the, the pre-code stuff right. crime does not pay yeah, crime does not pay. So, so you can have a story where for one, panel. <laughs> for one pa- yeah, yeah, you, like in all of those, it, it was pretty much the criminal paid at, at the end of the story. The, he went to the electric chair at the end of the story. The monster was killed, but there would be eight pages of pretty high <laughs> living with with games and money and booze. And, oh yeah, the electric chair at the end. So, so there was punishment, but boy, they made it look good up to that point. Um, and then, yeah, and you're absolutely right with the, the Alice Cooper thing. He very consciously crafted that show as a morality play from the very earliest days of of the
4: band. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think, you know, I think that the monster gives us cover to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do. I mean, I remember showing the interview with a vampire to my students about, you know, in two, in the mid 2000s and um, and realizing and I hadn't seen the movie for 10 years. And I realized that watching two men who were clearly sexually attracted to each other, exchanging blood was something that in the middle of the AIDS crisis Mm -hmm. was incredibly shocking, you know, because we were all Mm -hmm. so paranoid about our blood and that my students who hadn't lived through this, uh, didn't get that. Right. Um, but so it becomes a way of in that particular movie, a real, a way of talking about things that, you Mm -hmm. know, otherwise we would never talk about. So I, I mean, I guess, well, the, yeah, we don't have to talk about that anymore. What, what what was the original question?
3: <laughs> I, well, there's a lot of questions. I was really struck by the way we were talking about, you know, the way that sexuality is encoded in these things and <laughs> why it's sort of OK with monsters. And I and I think I, I, w- I want to go back to Twilight again, because that was that's the one. Because it's a it's favorite thing. book. It's, yeah. Yeah. That my favorite it, uh, of all the books about sexy vampires that I have never read. No, see, that's still not true because I've not read the Sookie Stackhouse ones. And I'm sure that I'd like them better. <laughs> I was going to say it's my very, very favorite sexy vampires. No, there's werewolves and damn it. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> the, w- with the Twilight books, it's odd to me that not only is it about encoded sexuality. I don't think anybody doubts that one thing that's odd about it for me is it is the one book that I can think of where there's very little even stigma about it. Anytime a young adult novel comes up, you'll have some pushback of people saying no you can't read harry potter that's about witchcraft and you'll have some people pushing against it or there's too much sex in the sookie stackhouse novels or or hunger games or you know, or, or whatever but twilight was relatively accepted but everybody knew it was about the sexual awakening of a 16 year old girl I everyone knew that i don't
1: know if that's true i don't know if that's true um, really? Yeah, like, I, I I mean, I. it was certainly not as big of a pushback against Twilight as Harry Potter. Um, there's actually a Parks and Rec episode that uh, makes fun of Twilight and also the debate about Twilight in that some people hate Twilight because, to quote Parks and Rec, it's like too Christian. Because of the you know we poor marriage whatever thing, and some mm-hmm. people said it's not Christian enough because you know vampires and werewolves and well, and also like I think Twilight I mean no one really wanted it maybe ban it in the same way that people were, you know, banning Harry Potter and burning Harry Potter on the beach. Sorry, that's that was specific to my own hometown. That that's not anyway. Um,
3: yeah, I grew up in a town where dancing is outlawed.
1: <laughs> I, I did grow up in a Baptist church, so actually kind of. Um, but that's not important to this conversation we we Um, might
3: need to do a whole episode just about footloose at some point just (laughs) Uh,
1: so like twilight also like got a huge amount of pushback from broadly speaking feminists who were concerned about the relationship between edward and bella like there's like a little article where it's like hey look at all the like real life signs of an abusive relationship and let's compare Mm -hmm. them to how edward acts like absolutely like it's I, it's certainly I like, in the films. I don't think I, and somehow Jacob is worse, much like if you read <laughs> Jane Eyre, Sinjin is kind of worse than Rochester, even though Rochester is also the worst. Um, it's really hard.
3: so cute. I just he's, he's really attractive. <laughs> yeah, it, no, he, he is. I actually want to talk about that, too, because there is a and again, having not read the books, only seen the movies there is a lot that happens in twilight that is just weird and creepy and sold off as romance. Um, now this is, this is common with the way we view with the way we view Hollywood romance, especially I I've, I've brought it up on the show before. Every time we talk about the male gaze, I use the notebook where he stalks her for 365 days and it's played off as romance. Edward is absolutely stalking Bella. Everything that he does in that first film and I'm going to assume transitively the first book is not okay. Like <laughs> like she's it, it's a girl who's like, "Oh, you make me uncomfortable, scary man who's a thousand years older than I am." And yet he's just going to sit there and keep creepy on. Her.
2: It it seems like it's excused because he really loves yes. her. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. And and I hope you can hear the sarcasm in my voice when I say that. Yeah. Uh, you you know, you know, and, every abuser ever, yeah. yes. And, and yeah. it's like it it it's it's a big book, so I was afraid I would break something in my house, but the number of times I just <laughs> wanted to throw it I just I, I I mean, barring the amazingly large number of commas places, but um just the frustration <laughs> where it's it's like I think it's cute that I'm being watched at night. I think it's how sweet he loves me. He cares about me, and I found that as a you know, mad If you say you're old, I I think that we are much of the same age. So apparently, as an old yeah. woman, um, <laughs> I find that I'm I not, not a it. thousand. <laughs> um, yeah,
3: I'm I'm not a thousand, but uh, I, but even I, I am. even as a man in my yeah yeah well as a man in my forties, if I'm hanging outside the do- the window of a 16 year old girl and watching her sleep. As a 16-year-old, if I'm hanging outside of the window of a 16-year-old girl and watching at no point does this, yeah, become, okay. this turn out it's to be okay. Not okay. Yeah, but it, gets,
2: it gets totally, yeah, but it, right. It's like it's like, it's okay, because he really loves her. And that's where I think right. that sometimes the supernatural gets into a problematic area, because... It's a supernatural being who really loves this human. We're going to be okay with that. If it was a real person, we'd have a problem with it. And so, while the supernatural is a great space in which to um, really try to address society's fears and concerns, it's also a place that I think some of these bad behaviors get to pass.
0: Well, it, it allows it allows the tra- it, it allows the transgression with those behaviors.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't
1: know if this is any different. Like, I mean, yes, it is slightly different, but I would say that. Twi- like part of the reason why I say Twilight is Jane Eyre, is because if we look at romance novels, which in their own way are kind of seen as low art by mm-hmm. people, unless you know mm-hmm. it's something like Jane Austen that people decide is wonderful. But whatever, um, Rochester, for those of you who have not read this novel, has a wife in the third floor locked away that he's abused and mistreated. Also, when Jane is like, no, I'm not going to be your mistress, he threatens to rape her. And then she, when she, then she you know, runs away so she won't be trapped like his actual wife. And then <laughs> when she comes back after his wife has died in a fire, a lot happens in this novel, um... <laughs> he he and her talk and she literally says oh like i should have understood he loved me too well to actually have like forced me to do anything but like she's saying that in retrospect when he is physically debilitated and because she loves him and because the novel wants this relationship to work like i mean i i know that i'm cheating by going to 50 shades of gray but 50 shades of gray has the same problem i mean even if you look at uh like The nice men, quote unquote, nice men of Jane Austen—they're also kind of dicks. I I mean, (laughs) I I challenge you because I've challenged a lot of other people, including people who work on the romance genre. Tell me a heterosexual couple in literature that, like, you—if you look at their relationship and like what happens—that it's not really gross or—and I hate this word, but I'm going to use it anyway—problematic. Like. Where is
3: Jughead and Betty on Riverdale? The best show ever.
1: <laughs> no, no,
4: no, <laughs> Gomez and Gomez and Morticia Adams on the Adams family. <laughs> yeah. They have such a loving relationship. It's a loving relationship
3: full of BDSM, but they're both cool but with it. So, it. yeah,
1: but, you know, like, they're you know, even like, like romantic comedies, most of them are predicated on someone screwing up in a horrible way yeah. to cause a drama. So, Something bad. So, are, are like, like to talk about female creepiness, S- sleepless in Seattle. Meg Ryan stalks Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. She's basically Edward Cullen. You know, like I, I, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I mean, like I think that yes, of course, when the supernatural comes into it, there are different ways we approach sexuality. But I don't think the politics of how we think about sex change that much, and they get dudes get a pass that they wouldn't normally get. Okay, maybe, but maybe in Twilight, and I think that Mav, you wanted to talk about this, Jacob Black gets a pass for being a pedophile.
3: Well, worse. So yeah, <laughs> wait, wait. My, my, sorry, about- I made the jokes about Team Jacob. I'm really Team Taylor because again, so hot. But anyway, but as Jacob, my... Do I don't even know who that is. He's the guy who plays Jacob in, um, in Twilight. Oh, right. <laughs> He's very dreamy. Um, yeah. As far as I can tell, the man does not own a shirt. Um,
4: <laughs> but it's but, a werewolf thing, actually. You just can't get
3: a yeah. shirt on. Well, that's, and, and speaking of it's a werewolf thing, that's the plot to the third Twilight novel slash fourth Twilight mm-hmm. movie. My super problematic thing with what happens in that movie that I don't understand. And, Again, I'm told it's explained better in the book, but I'm not going to read it to find out. And even to the extent that people have tried to explain it to me, I still have a problem with it. It's not
1: explained better in the book. I'm just going to come out and say that as someone who's read the book.
3: Thank you. Thank you. So at the end of the at the end of the series, she has chosen Edward. She's been she spent two movies trying to decide between the two dreamy, scary boys. And she chooses the vampire boy. And then they get married. She gets pregnant. Um, is pregnant for 25 minutes um, as she goes through full gestation, whatever magic. I'm I'm actually cool with that. She has the baby. Jacob shows up to kill the baby because he's a werewolf and werewolves kill things, um, kill vampires, whatever. I don't care. And then he sees the baby, holds it, falls in love with it, looks at his ex-girlfriend and says, I'm totally going to fuck your baby. And then she grows up in, you know, in five minutes because magic. And then there are a couple and everyone's just cool with that. And I don't like it. And, and yes, I get that. What I forgot what the hell's the baby's Vanessa name? Vanessa Yeah, it made up word, whatever. I get that she's magic. I get that she is a supernatural creature and that she grows to adulthood or teenhood or whatever. Young adulthood in like, you know, in three scenes. Fine. He's still... Just picked up his ex girlfriend's baby, and, and and I get that it's supposed to be cute. I get that it's supposed to be. Oh, he's found his lifelong soulmate. Fuck that. He just decided he's going to fuck his ex girlfriend's baby.
4: Okay. Minutes after she was born. So I think I, I want to say something that I think is smart about this, but it's probably not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But it's basically like He's because I before. thought it was interesting. Just yesterday, <laughs> yeah, just yesterday, I heard uh, a really similar critique about Gotham, the TV show Gotham. In yeah, with, with Poison uh, Ivy. Yeah, with Poison Ivy. Right. Where she was artificially aged and now she's become a sex pot, but she's still essentially an 11 year old girl. But, now 13, she's up, but yeah, right. yeah. Anyway, she's out there seducing men now because she has a a 25 year old body. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's and they kind of ignore that. But here's the thing about monsters. Right. I um, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen uh, writes that um, he observes that the word creature. Right. As we say, like Frankenstein's creature means a thing that is not created, but a thing that is perpetually perpetually being created, perpetually under revision at the behest of its creator. and. I think that this is like, not only is this true of monsters as creations within the fictional worlds in which they exist, but it's also true of monsters in the literary sense, the way that they interact with their authors and, um, the stories that, that, that when you start telling a monster story, yeah, it does give you certain cover, right? It gives you an excuse to do certain things, but also because the monster is a reference point that's constantly changing, right? Unlike other types of characters, the monster is constantly being reinvented and reinvented and reinvented in our culture. So therefore the stories that we tell about them also undergo revision in terms of the way that they are interpreted, right? So, um, so Cohen says that the relationship between the monster and the one who is create who creates the monster is not fixed and i'm going to read a quote from one of his books here he says the space of transformation becoming passion alterity the uncanny the utopian is in fact an interspace the monster and its dreamer are not two entities inhabiting a divided world but two participants in an open process two components of a circuit that intermixes and disperse both within an open vibrant unstable expanse so when we look at bram stoker who was writing you know 100 and what now 120 130 years
1: 1897? ago
4: 1897 Yeah 1897 is Dracula so hundred, hundred and twenty 120 years ago um, we're, we're all English majors and drama majors I don't know Right but we can look at the incipient homophobia in the novel Dracula as a, probably a pretty good sign that that Bram Stoker himself was a closeted homophobe a closeted homosexual and that's where his homophobia was coming from right um, I mean that's that's a that's a critique that's available to us but Bram Stoker never wanted that critique to be available to us. He wanted it to be a critique against homosexuals. Right. So I think that in the case of, um, in the case of twilight is where I'm eventually going with this is that, um, twilight itself disobeys its creator. It's a monster and it disobeys Stephanie Meyer. Stephanie Meyer famously is a Mormon and she, you know, operates under these codes of, of teenage sexuality that need to be regulated by this kind of, you know, uh, uh, stark hegemonic um, force that enforces yeah, force, right that enforces right behavior um, <clears throat> but as you point out the fact that we can look at Edward's behavior uh And, and Rochester's, you know, like Rochester's physically and emotionally abusive. He runs hot and cold. He's ridiculously emotionally unavailable and so on. She should become obsessed with him. I don't believe that Meyer intended these discourses to be available to us, right? Because if they, if, if they are available to us, then we, then it is what we're saying that, that, that it justifies and explains this abuse because of some ineffable quality of the abuser. No one understands you, baby. And that's why I do these things to you and so on. <laughs> but when we get to the end of the movie and the story um, and they've had their final battle in which uh, Bella is really trashed right by the other vampires and there's this huge battle and. She's in the hospital and she wakes up and her mother is there, right? And Edward says, here's the story. I followed her to Phoenix and I met her in a hotel and she accidentally fell down the stairs, breaking her leg and through a plate glass window, stabbing herself in the femoral artery. This is the stupidest explanation in the world, but she buys it because it's easier than admitting that she abandoned her daughter to live friendless and alone with her emotionally unavailable father, so that they could whoop it up in Jacksonville or wherever the hell they went. You know, it actually occurred to me that maybe the whole vampire story is something that Bella cooked up in her own subconscious, so that she wouldn't have to deal with the truth, which is that her parents <laughs> don't love her and that Dreamy oh, Dreamy Pancake beat <laughs> the shit out of her. And still, the only thing that she's afraid of is that he might leave her. Oh, that was an
2: episode of Buffy. <laughs> 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 yes, it was. Yes. it was. It's right, the best I episode. That, of Buffy. I, I say that. I'm
3: confused. Season six, episode seventeen. Normal again. It's, min, it's one of the best episodes about.
2: Right. That's that's. I, I'm right there. I, I I agree. You know. I mean, like it's it's why the kids always know in the horror film, right? And the parents are like, no, no, it's. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the midst of watching mm-hmm. The Haunting of Hill House, and the dad, mom, the dad keeps saying you don't have an imaginary, it's just an imaginary fad. It's just, because the kids are like, uh, no, it's not. No, it's not. You know, and, and it's, it is this great conflict, right? Because it is, it's easier. It's easier to dismiss horror as low art than to actually look at it and see what it's saying. To, to, to recognize that conversation. Yeah. It's easier to dismiss the supernatural because then we don't have to acknowledge that it exists, right? I mean, that's what's going on in these texts. It's, it's, Buffy has this, this choice in that episode, which is, you, you, what's the reality? Mm-hmm. We, from that point on we have no right. idea as viewers i mean i went as personally i went with her back and was like oh yeah the hospital is is the 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 fake life but really could is it really
3: really right, right. um i'm well so i i love buffy and my reading of that episode has always been because the last thing we see is them in the Mm -hmm. hospital not them in in the Sunnyvale world I have always taken that episode Mm -hmm. literally in that she does literally she chooses the world of monsters over the real world she chooses the world and it's supposed to be loving but she chooses the world where her sister is still alive to the world where her Mm -hmm. parents are still alive. She chooses the monster world. She chooses the supernatural world, but I've always taken it to be that she is in a catatonic state in an asylum Mm -hmm. for the entire rest of the fucking series. And it's at least in the world of just that one episode, it's tragic and sad. And I don't care because like she's made a choice to live amongst the monsters, which I think is, the show plays as heroically, no matter which, which mm-hmm. reality you believe is real. But I, I don't, I think that, and maybe both realities are real, but I think that from that episode, she is taking the idea that the fictional world is fictional and yeah. Buffy is just in well, an they, asylum. They, she they, always was, and she always will be. final scene
0: of saying Elsewhere. Not, none of yes. it was real.
3: All television exists in, yeah. the, in the mind of Tommy Westpaw.
4: But I mean, but you know, in that case, it's kind of a cop. Well, it, right? it was all a in, dream. Sure. <laughs> but in the case of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a terrible combat, yeah. you know, unless it's the Wizard of Oz. But but if you ever saw the the 2010, I think it was, um, Wolfman mm-hmm. remake with Benicio del Toro <laughs> and Henry Blunt and uh, Anthony Hopkins, which I think is a terribly underrated film, um, because it possibly just because it, it unites werewolfism <laughs> and daddy issues, which is something that I'm I find close to heart. But anyway, um, the the uh, the the possibility is raised that Lawrence's behavior, the, the werewolf's behavior in this could be explained by the fact that he's a werewolf, but it also could be explained by the fact that he snapped when mm-hmm. his mama commits committed suicide when he was just a little kid. And now he is sort of operating with a split personality and, and damaging the people that he loves most, you know, in a, in sort of a psychotic, he has a psychotic episode. And it's never really a hundred percent clear, uh, which it is, And that creates a very exciting ambiguity, you know, that I think is really effective. In that, in that kind of storytelling.
0: It's something I want to bring. We're, we're closing in on the end of this. Uh, we've got like 10 minutes left. Um, but something we we had mentioned in the show notes for the first first show and we kept talking and never got to it. Uh, I, and Michael, I know you and I have talked about this. Uh, so we're jumping topics a little bit, but it's the whole idea of studying monsters in an effort to increase empathy. The idea of empath, empathizing with the monsters. You talk about that in, I believe, the introduction to your book. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, think, I think that's an important concept and it was something yeah. I wanted to get to last time and, and we just never did so i want to throw it in here at the tail end and and just see what i, I want to hear mike I, I basically want you to, to give your little bit on that from your your book but also you know how other people think about that feel about that because i just i think it's an important piece
4: okay um <clears throat> well the book is the monster in theater history this thing of is available <laughs> from rutland the show. Uh, <laughs> again <laughs> yeah thank you Um, And let's see. Well, I mean, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is that you can do two things when you when you have a monster, right? When you see a monster and what most people do is they look for ways that they can connect it to things that they're afraid of in the real world. Right. So the monster is a terrific site for othering. Um, It's a terrific place where you can say, um, oh, you know, these these people have these characteristics that I hate. So I'm going to write a story about them. Uh, in which those characteristics become monstrous characteristics, and then other people will understand what I'm talking about. And I think that's where Bram Stoker was coming from when he wrote Dracula. But nowadays, we're in a really different place with monsters. We love monsters. You know, I just finished watching that show, I Zombie, and uh, I was really into it. You know, it's the story of this um, <laughs> a young lady who's a medical examiner, um, and she gets bitten by a zombie, becomes a zombie, and it changes her whole life. Uh, but it it sort of begins with her um, trying to deal with being a zombie and keeping her horrifying urges for brain consumption under control. And it and it winds up with her actually figuring out how to live a pretty cool lifestyle with, as a zombie and then eventually fighting for uh, civil rights to be her civil rights as a member of the
0: undead to be recognized. Okay. You know? Based on a comic book series. Right. Very, very loosely. Yeah, very loosely. But yeah, it, but it's a lot but of fun. it's a CW
3: show. So everybody's pretty. It's great.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, that's
4: so, all that matters. Well, so, now, yeah, my point is we have pretty monsters. We have sexy vamp, sexy monsters. We have glitter vamps, you know, who who eat animal blood and call that vegetarianism. I don't know how that works. But, um, <laughs> you know, or we have like, um, uh, uh, what's her name? Marceline, the vampire queen who doesn't drink blood. She drinks the color red. Right. Um, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, so the the other way of looking at the monster is recognizing that that something that draws us to each individual monster is something within us that we fear about ourselves. And it's possible to look at the monster as a dark mirror in that regard and to sort of find um Instead of finding the other in the monster, find yourself in the monster. And the idea is that if you do that, you could actually learn a lot about yourself that would make you a happier and more harmonious and more ethical person.
3: Is there also a thing where you look at the monster and see it as other? And if the monster is other and still lovable, then that means maybe, I don't know, so are black people or gay people or whatever. I mean, so I'm thinking of Sesame Street is full of monsters. Going back to our puppet episode. And, you know, everybody loves Elmo everybody loves Oscar and he's an ass, you know, mm. <laughs> like it's like, if you can have monsters that are lovable, if you can love Edward, you can love anybody, I guess.
4: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it goes off the back end. Right. <laughs> so
0: I, I, no, I, I might, you, you, you said that and it just reminded me of something I just read. I'm going to bring up a music thing and I'm going to read a quote that I, I just read recently. liked mm. <laughs> a musician that, that I'm, I'm into that I've listened to for years, Nick cave, um, who has also written about various different types of monsters in, in the world. Uh, I'm on a mailing list where he's answering fans questions. And one of the questions someone wrote to him was, who or what is the monster under your bed? And I, I'm going to take the time to read his response because I, I really like it because I think it speaks to just what you were saying. He responds, I guess if I were to look under the bed for monsters, I might, I might expect to find some Islamic terrorists, some man hating feminist Trump. Some rampant AI, some cyber criminals, some neo Marxist left wing radicals, some chemical weapons, some right wing Nazis, Putin, a nuclear explosion, a meteor, a melted ice cap, heaps of murdered farm animals, Roger Waters and some very, very bad weather. But actually I think what I would probably Roger find sta- <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or actually I think what I would probably find staring back at me is myself. Because most monsters I've ever had to deal with were usually a product of bad thinking and generally of my own making.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah,
0: there you- yeah. Exactly. So I mean, you know, to
4: but it, it takes a lot of I think personal strength to be able to do that, you know, to be able to say to be able to look at a vampire, treat women badly like we've been looking at, and then say, Wow, have I ever treated women like that? you know, or to look at a werewolf um um ruining the lives of his closest friends and saying, have I ever acted like that? Is that me? You know? Mm-hmm. And then it's hard. It, that's a lot because most people don't want to use art for that, especially art that they think is popular. But I, <laughs> but art. I also think that <laughs> low art, exactly. Right. Um, but I also, you know, I want to echo what, um, Heather said about, um, uh, you know, the, the very notion that art is popular among critics, that means that it's low art. Right. But, among scholars, we ought to be looking at it and saying, well, but if it's if it's popular then it's effective right. mm-hmm. and it says something about the culture that's producing it. Which right? is why we're all here. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And I think that most of these discourses like, you know, like, um, well, Anne Rice tried to make her vampires non aristocratic. She tried to get that out of it mm-hmm. and she failed, you know, and her mm-hmm. vampires wind up being even more aristocratic than than any, than than. than than Bram Stoker's, right? And uh, Stephanie Myers tried to make her vampires non-predatory, and she failed. They are very predatory, right? (laughs) So... So I think the fact that the monsters behave in ways that are different than their creators intend is actually pretty cool. But furthermore, that um, that these discourses become available to us if we have the energy and the willpower to delve into them a little bit more deeply. And and that's I think that as we become more sympathetic to monsters, Mm -hmm. we're going to start realizing those discourses more and more often, I hope anyway. But if we don't then the, the bad discourses operate subconsciously, but so do the good ones. So, you know, sometimes you tell a joke or, or you, I mean, you hear a joke or you see a movie and it affects you in a way that you didn't expect. You find that you have empathy with someone who you didn't expect to have empathy for. And the next thing you know, you're not a chauvinist anymore, yeah, or you're right. not a racist anymore. Right. And, and, and that actually happens, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. uh, culture culture has an effect on people. We, I think we all deeply believe that. And it has an effect on us sometimes, even if we don't well, know I, I,
2: it. In fact, I, probably I, most of the time. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think, I think that's
4: how it works I, for most people. I
2: wanted to um, just sort of go on and and sort of come back to Sookie. So I'm, I'm the opposite. I, I only watched a couple seasons, but I, I like the books. They're awfully fun. One of my favorite moments is, you know, this is about book four and Sookie, and I don't think this is the choice they've made in the show, but it's it's something that's talked about um, that's a focal point of the book. And she's saved the world. She saved the vampires yet again because it's daylight when all the bad stuff happens and she's the only one around who can actually do anything about it. And then after everything is done, some vampire shows up and starts hitting on her and she's like, Really, where are all the vampires when you really need them? I don't need a vampire now. I need a nap. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a lot, but, but it's, it's a sort of realization where she's like, I'm the one saving everyone's butts. Where are these supernatural creatures who are supposed to be mm-hmm. doing all the heavy lifting? I'm I'm this this because in the book she's human. Um, I'm this human who's who's having to save these immortals, supernatural creatures, over and over and over again. And I love that because it is it's That's it's funny. again that sort of realization. And as a reader, it just makes me laugh because I'm going, oh yeah, we we don't think of it that way. We don't think of the story that way. That is, it could be just just the regular person that saves mm-hmm. the day.
4: That's yeah. funny. That's funny because I wonder if I wonder if Mina <laughs> Parker ever thought that you know. <laughs> He was like, I have to save everybody, you know. Like these people are like, I have to, I have to deal with Dracula and Lucy and these bumbling idiot men and Von Helsing with his, you know, his savior complex. And I, and at the end of the day, I'm the one yeah, that yeah, has to do needs all to the work, to. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah. To, I, I mean, actually, if we go back to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, um, okay. the movie, not the book. Uh, the movie is. Kind of garbage, um, but yeah. interesting garbage. Um, I taught I'm, it um, at the request of my students. I've never gotten all the way through it. I've tried. Um, <laughs> because I let them vote on what no. we would do last. Um, I figured this was coming. Uh, but
3: I, You brought
4: your know, students the vote? I, oh,
3: my
1: God. You know, you know I, I, I limited the list. Democracy <laughs> is important. I, but uh, I, I was hoping they'd go with okay. Pay <laughs> Dreadful, but they did not. Um, They went with what I expected. But, uh, you know, like the interesting thing about the film Prime Person Zombies is that the way the script is written, it turns Darcy into a villain and a horrible human being, like more so than how you could read him if you don't like him in the books. And Wickham is actually kind of an interesting character who speaks for like the masses because so for those of you who haven't watched it, I will try and describe this in as little spoilers as possible, but let's be real. You probably won't watch it after this. Uh, the the zombies, you know, like, I mean, there there are huge problems with zombies (laughs) and, um, you know, like the ones in particular in prime person zombies are clearly like racialized and, uh, like seen as like lower class. Um, and like, you know, the infection is much like a Dracula thing. And then it comes from outside. Um, but, you know, Jane, Jane Austen's whole world in the original novels is built on polite society where people are in their place. And it focuses mostly on the landed gentry class. Um, whereas, you know, in this adaptation of an adaptation with zombies uh wickham is actually like a zombie who has learned that by eating like i think pig's brains if i don't remember or misremember they actually gain intelligence and can control themselves and darcy is absolutely not having it and sees no space for zombies in the world and is a zombie hunter and he destroys any opportunity of zombie and like human like unity of any kind um and seeks to put them in their place and all my students were like yeah darcy's a villain and he's horrible and it's horribly acted but matt smith uh from dr who lore plays mr collins and they were utterly delighted by him um so this is this is all to say (laughs) that you know whenever you introduce like a monstrous element uh, particularly to something like prime prejudice where it it's, you know, not that. And actually, uh, Charlotte Bronte criticized Jane Austen for being so polite and like ignoring like the passionate part of the world. Um, and in fact said that like, she would rather not ever touch the well-mannered country house that Jane Austen described because it seemed terrible. Um, And not fun to live in, you know, like introducing like the zombie element brings out some like truths that were already in the novel and the inequalities that were existing in late 18th, early 19th century England. Um, And of course, like this is a contemporary adaptation, but you can read back and like see things that you hadn't seen before. Like there's an utter precarity. In the world, a prime prejudice because of the marriage market. And I you know you, a lot of people read it as a nice fluffy romance and you're sure that Elizabeth and Darcy will get together. But you know the risk of the zombie world actually like really reminds you just how risky it is to be a woman in this world where you have very little power. I have a lot of boss about and zombies.
4: That's, that's pretty... That's, I had no idea. Um, <laughs> this reminds me of a film that came out in 2013 called Warm Bodies, which was a, re- yes. a retelling of I was going to bring that up. It was a retelling of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, where uh, Julie is a human. She's and, human. And R Brilliant. is a zombie. And they fall in love, and her love for him actually, or perhaps it's his love for her, starts his heart beating again, and he actually begins a transformation of becoming less of a zombie. But, um, obviously the, the humans who are surviving on the last compounds in the world are not going to allow him in there. And, and, uh, and if she goes out to see him, she'll be killed. She'll be terribly killed. So, um, so, but it is, it's a Romeo and Juliet story, even with a balcony scene in it. <laughs> right. And I think his name is not Romeo,
0: but just R as in. It's uh, just R. Yeah.
4: <laughs> 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 so, you know, why not? I say, why
1: not? <laughs>
0: Now, I, why not? <laughs> Shut up, Wayne. So we've resolved nothing. I, I don't know. If we, we weren't trying to resolve anything. Like, yeah. We're just talking monsters.
1: Yeah, but we, we left out so much. <laughs> like, I, I mean, obviously, we can't cover the entire history of all the monsters in the world, but...
0: Why not? It's an hour show, <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> How much can there possibly be? Well, and, and we'll, we'll extend the invitation. I it, you know, love having Michael and Heather on. Just th- this is a big topic. This is our first sequel episode. I think, like any good horror film, we'll keep doing more and more. Sequ- it's, our, it's our second. No, we okay, have a video game right, sequel right. episode. Okay,
3: so this is our second. But I think. Yeah. We'll- Oh, no, I was we gonna gonna do this.
4: sequels. I was going to say yes, but now that I see that you have another <laughs> sequel episode, I don't want to do it. Uh,
3: well, no, but we could. I mean, you got this. Is more of a you know horror right, is more yeah, of a franchise. Yeah. You just have to. It's not just a sequel. You got to you got to have a good. You know, we, we haven't, we even, haven't done even done Jason Goes to, Lummy, to the Space yet. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> see i don't know that and, and now uh, i'm already interested
1: never the <laughs> mummy. Son of box. i
3: have but i don't know why it's the greatest love story of all time and and that's now another episode see <laughs> <laughs> monster love stories can be the next one we, we you know we've got warm bodies we've got the mummy there's th- oh wow there there probably are a lot now i'm gonna have to like you know
0: well what well, we, we might Mav, have to do Mav. that S- swamp thing and abby oh god They're oh wow I mean, monster stories, love stories. I mean,
1: even actually, yeah. I, mean, I talked about it a bit of water, in the absolutely. blog, and I guess it's too big to get into now. But you know, the creature from the black lagoon is sort of mm-hmm. it's a, it's a mm-hmm. twisted love story. But I mean, Del Toro really latched on to the love element there.
3: So, sometime in the future, but certainly before <laughs> yeah. Valentine's Day, we've got to come and do <laughs> yes. a monster, a monsters episode where we talk monster, monster love, love stories for,
0: for Valentine's Day i like it
3: oh and okay so so we got shape of water we've got everything we've mentioned but also i'm gonna i'm gonna submit as an option the bat out of hell um stuff from meatloaf particularly <laughs> bat out of hell too anything for love <laughs>
4: um i do want to say along those lines though that that having read twilight and watched the movie i, I felt that that um that it wasn't the worst movie I'd ever seen. And it wasn't even the worst vampire movie I'd ever seen. That is Orgy of the Dead by Ed Wood. And I, mm. I believe that was Ed Wood's last film, Orgy of the Dead. And that is the worst vampire movie ever made.
3: I didn't even think of, see now I'm thinking like, uh, and I actually, and I actually like it, even though I know it's not good. Embrace of the Vampire starring oh. Alyssa Milano.
4: <laughs> that was a lot better than Orgy of the Dead. Yeah, it I is. I know I, it, I, I've,
3: I've seen both. That's why, but I was going to bring uh, Embrace of the Dead starring Alyssa Milano. Actually interesting. I'm not gonna say good. Interesting enough that someone it's a schlocky B movie where Alyssa Milano was in a phase of her career where she was like, I really, really want to have a career post who's the boss. So she does that thing that many, you know, teen starlets do for their first uh, for their first adult roles where they're like, hey, maybe if I get naked, people will pay attention to me. And she accidentally made what's Kind of a good movie it's not supposed to be but it's it's interesting interesting enough that it's a b movie that they actually remade as a b movie again and the the remake is awful in every way that you expect it to be <laughs> you no
4: know, i think what if we propose that that the next time we convene this group we do a like worst examples of of Ooh, culture of monster I culture like that, that we can find and we'll each bring one we'll each bring one and talk about it well
3: I would like, I think that's where yeah. we can end. Cause what I would, what I'm wondering is if you're a listener and you're listening to this show, let us know what monster culture stuff we should do next. Like in the comments, this is something you can comment on or something you can leave a review on, which nobody ever does, even though I beg every time and I cry myself to sleep at night about my lack of reviews. It's very sad. I'm a grown man. You don't want to see it, but but this is something you can comment on. What monster topics should we follow? What, what monster media should we be looking at? Should we be reviewing and what can we see in it? I, you guys were requested back not just from not just from us the, the your uh, from the first monster show this was one where people were like oh that was great we want to hear more so what oh do you want to hear we, us talk about
1: we should talk about witches <laughs> yeah we I should talk say, about witches yeah. Yeah. i want to yeah. say a big hi
4: to both i want to say a big hi to both fox podcast <laughs> listeners
3: <laughs> yes both of them <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <they're>
4: <laughs> sick burn, <Mike. laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, no, I'm sure there I'm sure are yes. thousands of people out there, yeah. and no, know, no, there's both of them they want yeah. to talk about. <laughs> oh, thank
3: you guys for coming back the um well, we'll link to both of your books again in the show notes, but is there
4: anything either of you want to promote Twitter, Facebook, anything? Oh yeah, I got something. um the New York Public Library uh has a very large Mary Shelley collection. Um, and in honor of the, um, in honor of the, uh, uh, 200th anniversary of the publication Mm -hmm. of the book Frankenstein, which is this coming year, 2009, um, or 2019, sorry, they are doing a huge, um, uh, exhibition about Frankenstein. And, um, this includes some podcasts and interviews that they're doing and also, um, you know, all different kinds of, uh, of events, I think, but I was interviewed for one of the podcasts, oh, nice. and I had a really great time doing it. And so, I definitely want awesome. to uh, to pump, to promote that. We will link to that um, in the show notes. I do Heather? not
2: have anything going on right now. I just uh, got back not too long ago from the Midwest Pop Culture Conference. Had a great conversation, actually, about Margaret Atwood, not monsters, although. That could be a podcast for another day. Um, but as always, pop culture, yeah, pop <laughs> culture conferences totally be. so much fun. A bunch of smart people talking a bunch of, about a bunch of cool stuff.
3: Hannah, where can people find you?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers. Though at this point, I think it's basically just me talking about Kesha <laughs> and <laughs> and the sheer amount of glitter that has invaded so, so, my house. So
0: I, I got a comment on this. My my current favorite. Newer band, the Struts, just released their latest album. They, they're, they're oh my god,
1: they're, they're, the song is so their good. first
0: single was Body Talks, and they did a second version of it with Kesha. So if you haven't, if you haven't seen, yeah, if you, haven't seen, if you haven't seen the video, it's amazing. So
1: yes, they're, they're, also they're, just they're, Kesha in general is amazing. Yeah,
0: they're they're all about the glitter, and I love it.
1: um
0: Join us next week for Kesha <laughs> talk on
1: <laughs> uh, an episode. Also uh, to plug Kesha again. Um, it, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's also having a moment in pop culture, which we should do an episode on, uh, but (laughs) she's doing a a duet with Kesha. (laughs) Kesha did the song. Here comes the change for, uh, the new movie. Um, not the documentary, but the movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it's been released early as a way to entice people to go vote. Also, everyone should go vote.
4: Go vote.
3: Um, yeah. If I edit this fast enough, then... Go vote yeah. tomorrow, cause this should come out on Monday. So if you live in America, go vote vote right. And <laughs> oh,
1: by that he means not for the right. <laughs>
3: yes. Vote left. Uh, yeah. It's it's because this this you know, this show has certainly got a political agenda and I think you should figure out which way it is and you should agree with us. Wayne, Here. where can people follow I- you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've gi- given
3: up. I-, <laughs> I love just asking you that every week just so you can be like, I don't know. Just, I, just, just I, I have show. a
0: tremendous backlog of material on the blog, uh, my, my my blog, Wayne-Wise.com. Anyone who listens to the show, even if you listen to every show from the beginning, I guarantee you haven't read all my past blog posts. So once the people get caught up, I'll start posting more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, you can follow me on Twitter
3: at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show on Twitter at Vox Popcast. You can follow my blog at www.chrismaverick.com. Follow the show's blog at www.voxpodcast.com where we will post calls for comments. We One just went up today about, well, actually it's too late, but it went up today about the show that we are doing live from Mac Charity Con this coming weekend, which has now passed if you're listening to this in the future. So what you want to do is you want to follow the blog so that you can comment on future topics before we discuss them on this show subscribe to the show on itunes or stitcher or wherever else podcasts come from if you subscribe to the show even if you don't subscribe to the show just write us a review again so i don't have to cry myself to sleep every night it's pathetic it's it's sad it's
0: it's, it's really sad Uh, yeah
3: not pretty but follow us subscribe to us on itunes and twitter i'd like to thank maximilian of Thoughtform music for our epic theme song that is building ever more epically to play us out right now and if you enjoy maximilian's music i'd also like to plug for him his new album is dropping this week there will be a link to that in the show notes as well so thank you max thank you for listening That's at right. home and thank you to all of our guests once again for being here we'll see you next time
1: Bye! See ya! Bye-bye! Thanks so much for having
0: us! Look, it's a wolf thing.
1: What's a wolf thing?
0: Um, you know we have no control over it. But we can't choose who it happens with. And it doesn't mean what you think, Bella. I promise.
2: Take one as my own room.
0: Oh.
1: Edward, don't touch me right now. I don't want to hurt you.
0: Oh. You imprinted on my daughter? It wasn't my choice. She's a baby! It's not like that. You think Edward would let me live if it was? I'm still debating it.